Lots going on in our world. In addition to uh, things happening in our world, there's things happening in our church. Uh, there's rumors flying that I believe by tomorrow night will be confirmed that uh, our general conference is either being postponed or canceled, which was to happen this fall. Uh, and on the docket, of course, was the protocol, which uh, was a piece of legislation that would let the United Methodist Church amicably diverge into different denominations. Um, so we, we were hoping for that legislation. It would have set things up to go far better than uh, has in many cases in the past. Uh, so we need to continue to pray for our church as well. Uh, our bishop will be addressing us tomorrow night um, via Zoom to give us his interpretation of what this means. Uh, but just all around us, we need the Lord. We need the Lord right now. And it's not just us. The whole world needs to know Jesus Christ and the love of the Father who sent him. But how will they hear? And unless we see someone and do something and risk getting closer to another life, that was the pattern of Jesus' life. See someone, do something, and then he moved closer to them. Even if they were lepers, he moved closer. Many times Jesus, though he loved the multitudes, he loves all people. Nevertheless, the impact of his life was often something that was applied one life at a time, one person at a time, life on life. And so if our pattern is to have that same kind of impact, then our eyes need to be opened by the Father to see someone, to do something, to get closer. If that was Jesus' pattern and it's our pattern, our prayer we've said is, God, work in me. Give me your heart. Work in me so that my heart will burn with compassion like yours did. Work through me. As I do something, Father, would you join me in that? So that the love that burns in my heart, that burns in your heart, will somehow be communicated through that which I do, even though I can only do what I can do. Father, that's not the end of it. I can do small things with great love, but even the small things I do, you can anoint you can move in others' hearts. You can communicate. So God, work in me. Work through me. Work with me. Jesus, on the night that he was saying goodbye to his disciples and about to go to his cross and there to lay down his life, he says in John 13, 34, a new commandment I give you. A new commandment. That you love one another. Now, what's new about that? From Deuteronomy 6 on, we are called to love one another and our neighbor as ourselves. The Ten Commandments Jesus summed up as, first of all, loving God and then loving your neighbor as God would have us love our neighbor. All that's based on the very character of God. There's a reason why lying is wrong. And it's because it's inconsistent with the character of God, which is truth. 
in him is light and there is no darkness at all. So if we were to reflect him in this world, lying's wrong. Do you get it? This is based on the very character of God trying through his people to change the cultures of this world. At the very core of that is loving God and loving one another. But what's new about it? If it's always been there in the Old Testament, what makes this a new commandment? It's the next phrase. Jesus said, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another as I have loved you. As I have loved you. That's the pattern. And when Jesus gave that command, the disciples' feet were still wet for him, from Him loving them one at a time by washing their feet. Jesus' compassion drove him towards us, not away from us. If Jesus' pattern and our pattern is to love one another from a distance, then Jesus would have never left heaven. He would have never come to earth. He would have certainly never gone to a cross. But he got close, and it got messy, and it was worth it. That's Jesus' pattern. Jesus calls us not only to love the crowds, but to join Him in loving people one at a time. Jesus welcomed the crowds. He spoke to the multitudes. He fed the 5,000. But when His life had a life-altering, life-changing impact, we often see that in these little cameos where Jesus steps apart from the crowd and intentionally gauges one person at a time. Think of blind Bartimaeus as he walks through uh, Jericho with the crowd. He turns and hears that one cry and gives him back his sight. He walks through the pools of Bethsaida. Hundreds of people infirm waiting for the waters to tremble in false hope that if they could just get wet because some angel was troubling the water that they had a chance of being healed. And Jesus finds one person in that crowd scandalously specific. And it's he and he alone that day that he heals. I don't understand all the mysteries of why Jesus again and again loves people one at a time. But it's hard to argue that that's his pattern. Jesus dares to get close to us. He left heaven for earth. He comes all the way to a stable. He makes friends. He lives for 30 years side by side with the rest of us before His ministry even publicly begins. It's important for our evangelism, but just for our witness in general to understand that Jesus has laid this out by his own life, this idea of our witness having a proximity principle about it. That God uses us especially when we dare to get close enough to one another to be, to be life on life. But that's an encounter that's counterintuitive for most of us. We see someone different than us our natural reaction is often to keep a safe distance. We see someone that's difficult 
We see someone that's disinterested. And often, instead of moving towards them, we, we actually kind of buffer ourselves from the risk of getting involved in another life. Different people. And yet, those people, if we follow Jesus, they might be the one that He's showing us to get closer to. It's a scary thing. I remember being scared about this. I was a young pastor, hadn't met Cheryl yet in Houston, so I, I, I was undistracted. <laughs> in my devotion to God. Now, I, I, was, I was a young pastor, but there's always people in your church who's, whose integrity, whose witness, whose fire for God can intimidate you as a pastor. They're, they're farther down the road than I was, and that was especially true of this one fellow. He was loud and he was abrasive. Everybody knew he was a Christian and he had, he had a prison ministry. And I was the new greenhorn. And I wasn't there a week until he came up to me and he said, you young man ought to be going with me to the prisons. And I said, yeah, 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 and shook the next person's hand. But that started to haunt me. And it was a few weeks later that I gave in to the Holy Spirit pressing upon my heart, you need to go. I didn't want to go. I had no idea what it looked like inside a prison. But I can imagine those people would be really different than I was. I didn't know if I could relate to them. To be honest, I wondered if I would come out unscathed, especially with this hothead that I was going in there with, you know? Maybe, maybe they knew to guard him, but who was I? You know, I, I didn't know how this was going to go. He didn't give me any forewarning. He just picked me up, and we went to the jail. But you know what I discovered? That those men that I saw that day were some of the most receptive, the most humble, the most authentically open to God, loving God people I have ever met. I thank God that so many of them had already discovered that they were God's child and had responded to it. Many of them, it was that case because they had finally come to God in the prison itself. Kyle Eidemann tells the story of going to a prison. He, he gave a devotion, and immediately after, a man came forward. He'd noticed him before. He'd noticed him partially because he was hard not to notice. He was huge. He was ripped with muscles. And most of his body was tattooed to where the tattoos even crept up on both sides of his neck. But that's not why he noticed him. The reason he noticed him because of the unashamed way that he worshipped God as Kyle waited to, to preach in the prison. It was that very person that came up afterwards. He had a huge Bible under his arm. And without introducing himself, he opened up his Bible and he pulled out a photograph. It was an age photograph 
One that showed him as a much younger man. And he said, Mr. Eidelman, I, I, I lived in this place for seven years. Look at that picture and tell me if you notice anything. And Kyle looked at the picture. It was certainly him. Some of the tats were already there, but not all of them. Was that what he was pointing out? He, he, had, a, he had a wrench in his hand and looked like a Harley at the bottom of the picture. Maybe he was working on his bike. Was that, was that what he wanted him to notice? And then he looked at it a little bit longer, and there in the background was a steeple and a cross. He said, you lived here? And he said, yeah, that was my front yard. But do you notice what's across the street? And he said, yeah, I noticed that. It's a church. And he said, yeah. And Kyle, sensing in the spirit what was coming, just said, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And that big burly man started to tear up and he said, you know, for seven years I lived there. No one ever crossed the street to talk to me. The only time I ever heard from the church was when I got a letter that my grass was too high and I needed to mow the lawn. I would see them Sunday mornings with their Bibles under their arms. I, I know it's a Bible now. It's like this Bible I have now, finally. This Bible that changed my life. It could have changed my life way back then. And had I known Christ before that drunken night of rage that ended in murder, I don't think I'd be here now. Why? Why didn't anyone ever get close enough to tell me about Jesus? And Kyle didn't know that pastor. And he didn't know that church. But he knew the humanness of his own heart. And so he ventured an answer with his apology. He said, they must have seen you as somebody that was very different than them and they must have been scared. And the gentleman looked at, back at Kyle and he simply said, that's not okay. That's not okay. In Mark chapter 5 and in Luke chapter 8, the same story is told of Jesus Jesus, as he's been ministering to the crowds, and it says he's been teaching the multitudes in parables. And then after a day of that kind of teaching, he turns to his disciples and he says, let us go to the other side. Now, to hear that properly, let me put it in English as we would hear it. Let's go to the other side of the tracks. Let's go to the other side of Lake Galilee. Let's go from this place where Jews are a minority, are, are, are a majority, even though we live amongst the Gentiles, to those cities on the other side that are pagan and Gentile fortresses. And you know what? I don't think the disciples wanted to go there. 
But this was Jesus talking to them, and they, they trusted Jesus, so they got in the boat. And then as they're going across the lake that night in the boat, a huge storm stirs up. And even though some of them are fishermen, they are, they are fearing for their lives. And they wake Jesus up, and Jesus simply speaks his word to the winds and the waves, and they settle down. And in that moment, they marvel. They marvel, who is this? Who is this that even the wind and the waves obey him? I don't think that wind storm that blew up was a coincidence. I think God knew he needed to teach his disciples something before what they were going to face next. If Jesus' word can control the wind and the waves, if he can control those things that we can't control, the, the weather and a storm, if he can speak into all those kinds of circumstances and his will will be obeyed, then maybe we can trust him when we get to the other side of this lake and face something that no one is willing to face, and that's this demonized man, the Gadarene demoniac. Gadarene because that was the name of the region in which he lived. A demoniac because he was filled with demons. And they weren't friendly Jewish demons. He called himself Legion. A pagan man with pagan stuff stirring within him. And he, he was so strong and he was under the influence of these demons that he would actually break the chains that bound him. They had him, they had him shackled. They were so afraid of him. And Jesus and his disciples go to the other side of the lake, having come through a storm that night where Jesus has spoken to the wind and the waves. And the first thing they see is this wild man coming out of a cave. What do you have to do with us, Jesus? Us? It's one guy. But today, this is the one guy. This is that individual that Jesus would lead, leave the crowds for in order to encounter. Now looking at him with human eyes, all of us would have recognized a madman. Most of us would have considered him a monster. There's no telling what he had done under the influence of those demons so that a whole pagan town had decided that he either had to be shackled or banished to the tombs. But Jesus didn't see a monster. He saw a man in misery. His eyes of compassion, I, I, you know, we don't have the ability to see across the lake, but somehow Jesus knew that he was there. The Holy Spirit moved Jesus to go across the lake to get closer to this dangerous dude. I kind of wonder if the disciples stayed in the boat. I think I would have. I might have moved to the back and make sure Peter was in front of me. He was supposed to be a big guy. He was the fighter and the scrapper, according to reputation. But Jesus delivers him. He had power to do such things. And then when the man was standing, sitting beside him in his right mind, the town comes out because there were shepherds in the region and 
the, the demonized man had spoken the words of the demon saying, don't, don't kill us, don't, don't destroy us, but send us, send us into the swine. And these pagans, they, only pagans would have had a bunch of pigs, not the Jews. They, they, they saw what Jesus did, and those spirits entered their pigs, and though they were pleading with Jesus, don't send us into the abyss, send us into those pigs. Nevertheless, that's exactly what happened. They ran off the cliff and into the water, and the pig farm perished that day. Well, they go back into town probably to tell their handlers and to explain why they went out with all those pigs, but they're not coming back. And the whole town comes out. And guess what? They're, they are scared of Jesus. Why? Why are they scared of Jesus? Because he's more powerful than that dude they couldn't control. They don't understand who he is or why he's there. But from what they can see, he must be a dangerous dude. Please, no more of this. If you could do that to him, and we don't follow your God, please, could you go back to the other side? And Jesus leaves having saved that one life. He went all the way across that lake, it seems, to touch that one life that was in misery. How about us when we see someone different than us or difficult for us or disinterested? Distance is usually a much more comfortable option. I've got to admit that myself. But if I'm going to follow Jesus to the one Sometimes I'll have to leave my comfort behind. If I'm going to join him and be his vessel to, to help communicate the love of God to someone who's yet to hear it, yet to respond to it, then and this is going to take some courage. But that's not just the pattern of Jesus. That was the pattern of those who followed him. And if we follow him, perhaps we'd be like Philip. Do you know his story in Acts 8? Here it is. Philip has been in Samaria. If you remember, the church had been persecuted in Jerusalem. And so the church was scattered. And as they scattered, there's an interesting word for it. They went gossiping the gospel of God. Gossiping the gospel. They were talking to whoever they could talk to on the way as they spread away from Jerusalem about their faith. And as they went, this one, Philip, who had been made a deacon, started preaching in Samaria. And when he did, people were coming to Christ. They were turning their hearts to the Lord. They were being baptized. Not just a few, but many. A revival broke out. It's going great. There's incredible momentum. And then the Spirit says to Philip, Leave the crowd. Leave the crowd. Go down to, to this road, which goes out to the desert. Take that road that goes nowhere. And he went. 
and he went. That's amazing to me. That Philip actually went. Wouldn't it have made sense to stay there with the crowd? Yes, but sometimes God calls us even, even to an individual in the crowd maybe or apart from the crowd. But, but there's power if we submit to what Jesus is doing in that moment in a person's life. If we, like Jesus, can, can get a hunch that God's already at work in someone's life and join God in that, how much more momentum is there in that situation for what God wants to happen? He might be like Kyle Eileman was in that emergency room holding his daughter's limp body blue from the dresser falling upon her. And in that emergency room, though he's been calling 911 again and again and again, and no one lifts the receiver, no one answers. He gets to the ER with his daughter in his arms. No one is coming to respond to him. Maybe the father's heart is, is screaming in silence, can't anybody help my daughter? Can't anybody see the suffering of my son? All the people that are supposed to help, the 911 operators, the, the ER nurses, or, or those that were, no one is responding. Here's one that's broken in my world. This is my son. This is my daughter. My heart is breaking for them. Don't you see that I would have them in my arms if only they would turn to me? Can't anyone help my son, help my daughter? Who are all these people that should be responding and are not? He goes. He goes. I don't think I would have done that, to be just honest with you. I think I would have been too in my brain, and that would have been too illogical. I'm trying to learn to follow the Spirit even when it doesn't make sense. I, I want to be this kind of responsive person, but I, I don't even like GPS. You know what I'm talking about? I, you, you know that little button on your Google Maps that when you touch that little green button, the whole screen changes. You used to be able to see your route from point A to point B. You could see all the turns along the way. You could decide if that was even the fastest route or the less faster route. You could know if there were tolls involved or you could know what to expect along the way. From the beginning to the end, it's all mapped up. That's how I want to travel. But I touch that little green button and my map goes away. I can only see 300 yards in front of me on whatever highway or back road I'm on. And there's that irritating little voice that never tells me quite soon enough, take a right turn. Take a right turn. And I've learned that if I, if I look down and actually look at the screen, in so many miles there is a little indication you're going to have to go that way or you're going to have to go that way. And that is the only way I can even stand it. You understand? I am not good at turn-by-turn -turn directions. But when God gets in the car with you and when He becomes a part of your life, He doesn't always give you a full map from where you are to the destination. It may be uncomfortable for us to get used to His turn-by-turn -turn cues. But here's the question. If He calls us to a journey, if He calls us to get closer, will we start? Will we move towards them?
All that Philip knew is what road to take, and he took it. He didn't have a GPS. He didn't know where he was going. He didn't know if he ought to turn off now or not. He just went out with his heart full of God and his eyes wide open. What a great way to walk through life. With his heart full of God and his eyes wide open. And then the next verse says, And behold, there was a man who was a eunuch and the servant of Candace, the princess of Ethiopia, And he was returning from Jerusalem. And he was riding in a chariot. Behold. I don't even know why that word's even there. Why doesn't it just say, and he went down the road, and then there was this guy. That's so (laughs) Bible-y. Behold. What's that saying? It's saying he saw someone. Not just that he saw someone, that he saw someone with the eyes of of God, with with the love of God in his heart. Maybe maybe there were others on that road that day, but behold, he saw this entourage. And this Ethiopian eunuch was being carried back from Jerusalem. He'd come to Jerusalem, obviously, to worship. But you know, in Jerusalem, he was different. He was so different that he wouldn't even been allowed in the place of worship. He would have been turned away as a pagan on the outside. Turned away because he was himself deformed or defaced as a eunuch. Now, we, we know what a eunuch is. That's, that's a guy who's had his private parts removed. But it was a requirement of the job. He served the queen. And the men who served the queen had to be safe for the queen. And so this was a job requirement. I used to get upset when I had to wear a tie. So so, so this guy had gone to Jerusalem all the way from Ethiopia. Now, Ethiopia in that day was a... Uh, a term that was used in slang, like Timbuktu. Anybody know where Timbuktu is? It's actually in Nepal. Timbuktu, I think it's in Nepal. It's in Africa? See, I don't even know where it is. Timbuktu, it's Kathmandu that's in Nepal. Uh, Timbuktu, have you ever heard that before? I don't care if I have to go from here to Timbuktu. Well, they would say the same thing about Ethiopia. You couldn't get any farther away in their understanding than from Ethiopia. And he had made that journey all the way to Jerusalem. And you know why he was going there? Because he left as a rich man, and only a rich man could afford one of these. He had brought, bought a scroll, a scroll of Isaiah. And so what he couldn't hear for himself, because he was rich, he, he, he bought a scroll, only the priests... And the most important scribes would have had a scroll like this. It was incredibly expensive. The, the average run of the day people didn't even have access to it. But, but he had a scroll, and he was reading the scroll as he went. So what, what, what does Philip do? The Spirit says to him, go up alongside the chariot. Go up alongside this. And he did. He did. I wonder why he did. I wonder if it's because 
like I hope the disciples learned that night that Jesus stilled the wind and the waves, that if God can control every circumstance on this earth, then why should we assume that every person that we encounter is a completely random experience? You know, sometimes we have to choose to get close to people. Sometimes God just brings them to us. Have you ever just walked through life curious about what this person being close to you is about? That person that sits next to you on the plane. That person that sits down next to you on the soccer field. That person in your class. That person uh, at your school. that, That person in your workplace. Can't anyone help my daughter? So Philip Philip wonders if this is it, apparently. Maybe this is why the Spirit gave him that unction. So he, he, he starts walking alongside the chariot. Notice he doesn't barge in. If he'd gotten too close too fast, probably the people who were defending him and, and carrying his stuff would have probably taken his life. This was dangerous stuff to approach a convoy like that with a rich man you, robbers would have been killed if they got close. And so, so why is he coming along? Uh, he has to do it pretty inconspicuously, I think. He, he comes alongside the chariot. Has God told you to chase a chariot? Your chariot may be your gymnasium. He's bringing you alongside other people that his heart cares for. Have you asked him while you're at the gym to open your eyes to see that person that might be on God's heart? Do you walk through life curious that this next encounter might be one that's not just random, but God-ordained? And so curious, he's walking alongside the chariot, and he hears this Ethiopian eunuch. Apparently, he knows Hebrew, or he knows Greek, and he's reading the scrolls. It might have been a Septuagint, I don't know. But it might have been Greek, might have been Hebrew, I don't know. I've got a seminary student down here. I'm, I'm getting self-conscious right now. But he's, he's walking, and, and he hears this guy reading this book. And it happens to be a book he's familiar with. It's Isaiah, a prophet of the Jews. But it's not just Isaiah. It's a specific passage in Isaiah. Isaiah 53 It's that book that forever puzzled the Jews because they understood their Messiah to be a conqueror and a king and a one whose reign would never end. And then in Isaiah 53, it's the story of God's suffering servant who was beaten beyond recognition, who took the the flogging and and, and the stripes of others that, that they might be healed who was lifted up and and who gave his life and who is separated now from his generation. As he he walks along, he hears him reading that. And he says, hey, do do you understand what you're reading? And the Ethiopian eunuch turns to him from up in his chariot and he says, no, how can I understand it unless someone guides me? I need some GPS right now. And God had provided Philip. And Philip gets in the chariot and they start 
driving together. And he says, what is it that you're reading? He reads it again. He says, what is it? Who, who is it that, that this is about? Does the prophet speak this of himself? Or is it about someone else? Read Isaiah 53 this afternoon when you go home and tell me who you think it reminds you of. It is an Old Testament outlined silhouette of who Jesus is in some of the finest of details. I think Isaiah 53 is so powerful that had I been a Jew when I was growing up, if I had gotten to Isaiah 53 and read it, I would have become a Christian. It's that specific. Who, it is, who is it that he's talking about, himself or someone else? And, and Philip just walked right into it. He had some clues along the way. Should he get closer or should he not? He's reading Isaiah. So we ask a question. Do you understand what you're reading? How can I unless someone guides me? Another clue. They read it together and he says, who is this about? This man or someone else? Hello. Let's talk Jesus. And he does. And he does. And, and, and the Ethiopian unit is so convinced by what he hears, he says, well, well what's to uh, 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 stop me from, from being baptized? And he said, nothing if you believe with all your heart. And so they stop the chariot. They both get out. They get down in the water. The Ethiopian eunuch is baptized. He's connected to God the Father. He's been reconciled to God in Jesus Christ. He gets back on his chariot, and then it says the Spirit took Philip up from there, and he found himself in Azotos. I don't know if that was one of those Star Trek kind of things, you know, where, where he beamed him someplace else, or, or if that's just literary stuff to say that the Spirit led him somewhere else? I don't know. But what's amazing to me is the power of that encounter when Philip was willing to get close to someone different from him. I wonder, have you ever wondered if you really ought to bring, you know, you see people sometimes in life that really have it all together. They seem to be doing well in work. They seem to be rich beyond your imagination. They live in a house much larger than yours. Their family doesn't seem to be coming apart. And you wonder, well, why should I bring up Jesus to them? Besides, they're probably disinterested. They're so different from me that maybe they don't feel a dependency for God like I do. And sometimes it's those very people that are still searching in life, do you understand that that drivenness to accumulate sometimes indicates that someone's searching for something? And if they haven't found the bread of life, that which Jesus says, I only truly satisfy. No matter how much they've accumulated, and especially if they're on, the, they're on the other side of that disillusion, they have everything they've always dreamed for, but it still doesn't satisfy their heart. You may have someone closer to God than you realize. Someone that's waiting for someone to, to guide them. Could this possibly apply to me? This last week I was reading a blog. I really try not to do too much of that. You know, that stuff that just comes up on your phone and you can waste a few minutes by reading something. And I, I started reading it, though, and I, I, I just put it off later. I thought, hmm, that's interesting. But, but God brought it back to me. 
I, I don't know who it was. I couldn't find it. Isn't that a pain when, when you can't find what you read? I, I, I couldn't find it on my phone, but it, it was an article of a guy who said that he was driving into a small Midwestern town. And he drove into town. He noticed two billboards. Now, one of the billboards said this. It was the one that you would get to first on the road, which made him suspicious that the second one he saw was actually the first one that was erected. And then this one came along in order for people to read it first. And it said this, Real followers of Jesus obey His teachings. Amen. True or false? True. Absolutely true. Go to the bank with that. Absolutely true. This church was proclaiming the truth. And then he comes to a second one, and it says that. Jesus has hope for you. True or false? True. True. Absolutely true. Right? But now imagine you're someone in a car who's coming into town. You don't know Jesus. And this is how the body of Christ comes alongside you. Go back to that first. Yeah. Real followers of Jesus obey his teachings. Well, I'm not a follower of Jesus. And I don't obey his teachings. Conclusion? Jesus ain't for me. And then you go past the second one. Jesus has hope for you. Well, that sounds good. Jesus has hope for me. Me being like me, Jesus has hope for me. God might be interested in my life. If he has hope for me, that, that means he notices me he could this god be for me well it says it right there for you jesus has hope for you now if i was a pagan going into that town i might say well they're not thinking of me they're thinking of other people that might be willing to get religious but that ain't me i might completely disregard it as much as i would have disregarded the other one But I want you to, if we're going to risk getting close to people who are different than us, we have to be wise about how we do it. Now, I, I pray that you'll think about this because it's going to hit you hard. It's not enough to speak the truth in love. But the scriptures say that. They clearly say that in Ephesians, that we are to speak the truth in love. It's absolutely true. But listen, there's two sides to this. There's the side where we check ourselves, am I speaking the truth and am I speaking it with an attitude of love? Am I backing that up with my life so people can believe? It's, am I speaking the truth? Check that. 
in love. But the people on the other side of that are in a different place. And for the sake of reaching them with the gospel, it's not enough to speak the truth in love. Listen, they have to hear it as love. They have to hear it as love. So body of Christ, if we get close to people, maybe God is calling us to holster our truth gun. And not obliterate them with the truth that we see from our eyes they may not be aligned with. What would you expect? They're pagans for God's sake. You expect pagans to be pagans. Of course, they're going to be disaligned with the gospel. Every one of us are or were when the gospel came seeking us, yes? But, it, but it's not God's truth that necessarily calls me to repentance. It's His kindness. It's not just that I speak truth and I know in my heart I speak it in love. The challenge is higher and greater and more strategic in that. We have to speak the truth in love and they need to hear it as love. And you cannot control that. You cannot, cannot control how they hear it. Especially in today's environment. All they have to hear is one clip, one phrase that puts you in another camp and you are instantly judged enemy, not friend. So the stakes are even higher. We have to not only with our language, but with our life, convince them that the truth that we share, they can receive as love. This is a high calling. We can't do it apart from God. We'll mess up. I've messed up. I mess up still. But love covers a multitude of missed marks. Love covers a multitude of amartia, of sin. That's what it's talking about. You don't have to always hit the bullseye to be faithful. But it's not just what's in our hearts that matters to God. It's what they're experiencing in theirs. It's not enough. It's not enough as our church diverges for the traditionalists just to think that we, we have the right doctrine. We're speaking the truth in love. The Bible as we read it is pretty clear about whether or not it affirms homosexual lifestyles or if it calls us out of that if it affirms sexual prosecution that word I'm still back on eunuch sorry it, it, it's, it's not enough it's not enough just to speak the truth 
We've got to get, dare to get close enough that those that suspect that God, our God, does not love them, sees in us argument to the contrary. Do we abandon the truth? Never. We are to be sanctified in the truth, baptized in the truth, clarified by the truth, defined by the truth, always. But the truth is that our God loves every single person we will ever lock eyes with. The difficult people, the different people, the people that we don't understand, the people who give us the creeps. And I'm praying, may God rise up into me so, 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 so that I might have the courage to see someone and do something. To see someone as Jesus sees them and not be paralyzed in my fear. To speak to my waitress and see where that goes. To ask him, hey, hey, dear sir, is there, is there anybody, that, anything that I can pray about? We pray over our meals before we have our meals. Is there anything in your life I can pray about? How would you like God to bless you? And they might like look at you like you're a Martian. But when I've done that, eight out of ten times, it becomes an encounter. Somebody says, you know, I'm a single mom and I'm trying to make ends meet and I just don't see how it can happen. I'm tired and I love my kids, but this life is killing me. I need a breakthrough. I, I, I need some strength. I need some help. And I usually tell them about Emerge, but I always remind them of these things that are always true. God loves you. God treasures you. He came from heaven to win you back. In Jesus Christ, we've all been reconciled to God if we'll just receive it. And therefore, the Spirit urges me to urge you to respond to a God who loves you like that, that surrendering to a God who would love you enough that He would die in your place, that you might find a partner in life, no matter what the circumstances are. That you might have strength, that you might know that you're not abandoned, that you might know that you're worth something. Because what He did on a cross for every one of us settles that score forever. You are precious in His eyes. And it's an honor just to pray for you. God help us. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, I've gone too long maybe. But this isn't an ordinary Sunday. We've watched you pour out your grace upon little lives. We pray that continues for our kids. Father, we'll go back to watch more news clips this afternoon.